This is Tripwire Week in Review for week ending March 10th, 2023. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS Commercial Real Estate and CLO Markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Henry, Head of Siri and Advisory Services. This week in congressional testimony, Fed Chair Powell stays on point on fighting inflation as long as the data shows a strong economy. On the data front, jobs are in focus as investors wait for last month's unemployment number. In the meantime, investors could chew on other jobs data. Private payrolls reported by ADP were robust last month, and job openings still outnumber available workers. But unemployment claims posted the largest increase in five months, surpassing 200,000. Manus Powell's comments sparked a sell-off in the stock market and bond yield soared. Was the market reacting as they should? Wow, the market reactions have been fast and furious. I kind of feel like the last kid in the gym class on one side of the dodgeball game, and there's like 11 guys on the other side, and they all have balls, and you're the last guy standing, and they're all shooting things at you at once, <laughs> and you really can't even figure out what's happening. And that's what it feels like to me with the investor reaction right now. Every time a headline comes out, even if it's not terribly informative, which I don't think the initial jobs claim was. Yes, it was up sharply, but we're still near historic lows. Everybody pivoted from no landing, economy is too hot, rates are soaring, there's no end in sight to the Fed taking their foot off the gas, to, in a matter of minutes, bond yields falling, stocks leveling off, and people all of a sudden bringing up the recession word again. Uh, I've never really seen this where there's such immediate and violent reaction to what is really, I don't want to say mundane data. It was a little bit more than mundane today. There's the uptick in, in the job unemployment benefits number, but the reaction was just unbelievable, right? On Wednesday and Thursday, we were coming off a month of really hot data, and that included a higher than expected ADP jobs number on Wednesday. We had Powell telling us we might need higher rates than previously anticipated. We had traders betting on a terminal rate for Fed funds of 560. The one year, I think, was up to 525 as a rate. And then with this one wave of the data this morning, the two-year yield is down 15 basis points. The 10-year is now down well below 4% again, and everybody's throwing out the R word. And could happen again in reverse tomorrow morning. We have the jobs number in the morning, and who knows what the reaction is will be to that. Yeah, it's really interesting, Manus. I think we're seeing this social media world that we live in today, where literally things change based off of somebody's Twitter post or somebody's, you know, interview or whatever. In this case, you know, Powell, I think people have been questioning his resolve relative to staying the course. And to your point, we've had some you know, reports or numbers come in over the last month or two that have shown the market still pretty hot. And I think this week, he really kind of solidified himself as saying, like, we're in this for the long haul, we're going to hold rates higher. Maybe the, that rate ends up being higher than what we had expected. And so it's really interesting. If you watch the testimony, you know, when Warren was coming after him, and some of the others were kind of grilling him, I felt like he really kind of dug his feet in and kind of stood his ground a little bit. And I think maybe the markets were reacting to kind of that direct response that he gave where it, it felt like he was taking a stronger position affirmatively. Now, 
after that, he comes back and says, you know, officials haven't determined what they're going to do in March. They're still gathering data. So it's kind of softening it a little bit. But I think if you if you look at what people are guessing is going to happen in March, it was kind of a foregone conclusion. It was a 25 basis point hike. And I think now it's probably a toss up between 25 and 50 basis points. So it's really interesting from my perspective. You know, we've talked on the pod for the last couple of months of Sometimes the market reacts 180 degrees opposite of what we think it will based on news, and sometimes it doesn't react at all. And then you look at this week where you get something, like you said, maybe kind of mundane, but the markets have a pretty violent reaction to it. So it's really interesting to see it play out. Even though the Wall Street Journal and Barron's and other financial publications today, when they were doing their wrap-up on Thursday afternoon, uh, all of them pointed to the recession word for sure. They were unanimous in pointing to the jobless claims, the job benefits claims for the reason for the sell-off. But one thing I think we can't discount is the announcement this afternoon of President Biden's budget, which it didn't make it into the analysts' commentary today. And to be honest, I think most of this stuff had been previewed either by his staff. Uh, We've seen articles in the Wall Street Journal about it. We talked or we've seen talk about Medicare hikes tax hikes, corporate tax hikes, wealth tax hikes, the introduction of wealth taxes, corporate tax hikes, capital gains, tax increases. So it shouldn't have come as any surprise, but it was noteworthy that in the three hours after his remarks, the market continued to sell off steadily. So maybe it was a a function of people seeing that number in print and people reporting it that capital gains could go up considerably corporate taxes could go up substantially. And and that probably also weighed on the market today. Yeah, it's interesting. If you look at some of the bullet points from his release, 25% minimum tax on the wealthiest Americans, hiking the corporate tax rate to 28% up from 21. And then, you know, targeting oil and gas companies to increase taxes on them to generate more revenue. So, you know, those are all bullet points that, that are not probably overly exciting to a lot of folks in the U.S. and businesses as well. And then the 1031 exchange, which we, you know, talked to, you know, ad nauseum about this during the election process, you know, that looks like it's back on the chopping block. And it makes you wonder if some of this is just political fodder or if this is actually things that they hope to implement, because these are talking points that we've seen pretty much, you know, through his election campaign and then now seeing it, you know, released in the budget. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, the longer term reaction to these things and how they get modified and, and tweaked. But, you know, not great news on the corporate side when you see, you know, significant increases in proposed tax rates, et cetera. Yeah, for those that didn't hear it this week, we had Danielle Booth on the podcast on Tuesday, one of our best podcasts in terms of content, in my opinion. And we've now done, I guess, about 200 of these or close to it uh, at this point. It was really far-reaching in terms of Fed policy, QT, debt ceiling negotiations. I would urge you to listen to it. You know, her point, which we haven't spent a lot of time on, but she was really blowing the, the bugle on this on Tuesday, was that debt ceiling clock that's running right now. And her point was a really good one. I, I don't want to give away the the lead, but... You know, she really talked about when you have a Congress that's divided by a majority of whatever it is, four seats, uh, whatever the Republicans have in the House, you know, really anything can happen, right? You have three or four people that are the deciding votes on how we go forward on this, and it's really unprecedented. So I urge our audience to check that out. Really great stuff. And 
uh, we were really happy to have her this week. Yeah, it was a great episode. I listened to it and took a lot of notes. She obviously is a Fed insider, formerly. So she knows and she says herself how the sausage is made and uh, gave us some some great insight into how Powell is uh, is positioning what he's saying. You know, I, I was always a big fan of The Simpsons, you know, the cartoon. And so much was happening in that cartoon, right? It was so dense of material that if you weren't really watching carefully, it was easy to miss some of the, the really cool jokes and the inside jokes and so forth. And I felt this more than ever with Danielle, that you had to be laser focused on what she was saying because she was, there was so much content and the thoughts were so dense so quickly, not dense in the, dense in the positive way. There was just so much to digest um, that you really had to be on your game, kind of listening to all the different things she was focusing on in that 45 minutes. So it was, it was really enjoyable. Yeah, that's pod 185. So if you're looking for it, look for it by by that number. And honestly, if you listen to anything this week, use that one. Yeah, I, I even during the podcast, I mean, you'll if you listen to it, you'll hear me. I mean, I was complimenting her on the passion and to Manis's point, her ability to answer questions quickly and, and with very, you know, concise, but but to use Manis's term, dense response was just really incredible. And her being a Fed insider, I mean, you're getting it directly from somebody that's been in the in the position. So it was really, really insightful and a really great guest pod from the team. And we saw CMBS spreads absolutely soar as well. Yeah, this is an interesting thing. It hasn't gotten a whole lot of press of late. Perhaps that's because we're not seeing a lot of primary issuance on the CMBS side, particularly on the conduit side. The last conduit bond to price was mid-February, and the triple B minus at that issue, at that date, cleared at 770 basis points above the SOFA curve. So you were talking at that time at about a yield of, let's call it 11%, give or take, for triple B minus. Since then, we've seen really considerable widening on the triple B minus segment of the curve, I would say that we're easily out 100 basis points on cash. I was seeing tweets today by Dan McNamara, who's uh, a CMBS and CMBX guy. He tends to be short by nature. He shorted retail in an article this week in The Real Deal or Commercial Observer talked about him um, now shorting office. Um, so he is short by nature, but he was saying that we're now in that 13 to 15% yield for triple B minus at this point. And some of the widening was really extraordinary. Triple B minus for CMBX eight and nine was probably 150 basis points, give or take over the last week. So what does this mean? I'll, I'll give you two thoughts. Thought number one is as treasuries go up, as CMBX widens, as cash spreads widen, it only will make it harder for CMBS issuers to bring deals to market, to lend. The cost of lending has gone up considerably, which means demand has been softening. And because CMBX, which is the hedging vehicle for people that warehouse CMBS has been so volatile, the issuers will be even less likely to make loans in, in this environment. And we've seen this already, and I, and I think that will continue. 
On the more upbeat side, I think for those that have a, a strong nose for credit, there's a lot of opportunity right now in the triple B minus space. For those that really know their credit, that can separate the wheat from the chaff on uh, good malls versus bad malls, good office versus bad office, there are 14 and 15% triple B minus returns out there, which compares very favorably to triple B minus corporate bonds currently. So something to look at if you are a bond trader or money manager. Yeah, I would agree. I think you're going to see an increased activity for targeted plays with people that, you know, have a, a good feel and understanding of the credit. But to your point on the issuance, you know, we've really seen a significant decline in issuance starting in August of 22. The markets were not nearly as volatile as they are now. Spreads were not where they are now. Some of the challenges that we're facing now were not present. There's been very limited issuance in 23. I don't see a, a huge change in that, especially given where we, you know, see Powell falling out this week. Like, I just don't see something, unless something dramatic changes, I don't see anything really changing in the issuance market in 2023, which is, you know, not great. So hopefully, you know, something that I don't know about or something that we haven't seen, you know, acts as a catalyst to get that market reignited. But at, at this point, based on what we're seeing, doesn't look great. At some point, we should dust off our notes, kind of replay the narrative. We did a very deep dive on shorting CMBX 6 in retail. Uh, but it was a long time ago. I think it was probably 18 months ago. We should do an educational segment at some point on what shorting means when you use CMBX as your vehicle and what shorting uh, offices might look like compared to shorting retail at some point. And we released our February payoff report, which looks at loans paying off on the maturity date. It remains quite muted. What we're looking for here, it was something that a big money manager asked us to produce starting about 12 years ago. But this is something that was put in place to get a sense of what percentage of loans that make it to maturity pay off on their maturity date. The money manager at the time was looking for what percentage of these loans extend and for how long, looking for is there juice in the IO trade? Will these things hang out longer and will you get IO money for much longer than you expected? And the answer historically has been kind of yes. During good times, you may see 70 or 80% of these things pay off on their maturity dates. The ones that are lingering that haven't been prior defeased or prepaid. But in, in times where money is tight, uh, those numbers drop. And the number this month was about 50%, 52%, something like that. Meaning about half the loans that reached the maturity date paid off and the rest moved into CMBS purgatory. Uh, the good news there for those that want to see these resolved is the numbers were up from uh, a 30 handle and a 40 handle in the prior two months. So things are getting better, but it is below the number that we see historically. During good times, the numbers are usually 60 to 80%. So more and more borrowers, whether it's strategic to keep that low rate in place or because they can't find refinancing, if it's more structural, we don't know, but payoffs remain quite uh, subdued. And this week, we're going to spend most of our time talking about office because there are a lot of office stories. It does seem to be a flurry of office discussion. And I don't know if you guys saw the story of uh, the CEO, Mark Dixon. He's the, the head of the company IWG, which owns Regis. They think there's a big shock coming for commercial real estate, which isn't 
that out there of a comment. Um, <laughs> but he says the opportunities are are good. Yeah, it's kind of like saying when there's no clouds in the sky, the sky is blue. You know, I think at this point, shock. I mean, I don't know what that means, really. It's 2023. People haven't really been back in the office since 2020. I don't think that this is a shock in my perspective. I think maybe it's a realization. That's probably a better use of what what's actually playing out. People are realizing that nobody wants to commute to the CBD. They'd rather, you know, work from home and be more productive, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I, th I thought the article was interesting. You know, obviously, you know, he was talking his book here, basically saying, you know, offices are going to go to more of a gas station model, I think is what he referenced in the article of saying, you know, you're going to go there for what you need and you're going to get it and you're going to, you know, have a gas station on every corner. And so you're going to have some flexibility and, uh, you know, kind of relating that to office and which is exactly what Regis has set up. You know, they have about 830 locations across the U.S. where you basically rent offices by the day or the week, the month, et cetera, kind of the WeWork format before WeWork was a thing. And so, you know, I don't know if I think that's going to be, you know, the new modern office strategy, uh, but it's interesting to hear his perspective. You know, WeWork as a contrast, you know, 256 U.S. locations compared to the 832 for Regis. So an interesting story. I think it's, you know, topical in the sense that nobody knows what's really going to happen. It's interesting to hear his perspective, but I don't think there was anything revealed in that article that, you know, we haven't already talked about or the data hasn't already started to show. I could picture Lonnie, you know, kind of eventually running into these places for a $2 bag of nuts and to use the restroom. Is that what he had in mind? Like pull over, run in, you feel bad if you just use the restroom. So you buy something for two bucks to you know, sustain you for the, for the next uh, two hours of your long ride? Is that? Yeah. I mean, I was, I mean, I'm not saying I haven't done that, you know, like I probably have done that multiple times in life. I'm instead of peanuts, it's probably like sour Skittles would be my go-to, but I was actually like wondering for Martha, you know, like in New Jersey, you guys can't even pump your own gas. Right. So like, is there a, is there a correlation here where like you can't open the door, you got to have somebody there to like carry your bag into this uh, Regis office space. Yeah. You make it sound like Pumping your own gas is somehow a benefit. Really isn't. <laughs> okay, back to the programming. We have a number of stories having to do with uh, move out, subleasing, and dumping of office space. Yes, the first one. Now this is the third or fourth big one that we've seen. Amazon slamming the brakes on HQ2. The headlines were quite dire. They made it sound like they're pulling out of HQ2. They've already finished half their construction and a lot of people are working there. So it's not like they're pulling out of Northern Virginia at all, but they've stopped construction on the second phase of that. And that follows on the heels of Microsoft pulling out of its plans to build a big facility on the West side of Atlanta and Amazon previously tapping the brakes on a project in Seattle. So what do you think guys, is this the new normal that all these governors and mayors that pumped out huge amounts of incentives to get companies to come, they're going to be left with not a whole lot of jobs to show for it. I think that's the challenge that you, you know, hedge against or face uh, when you offer those incentives. I mean, it's, it's great to get the headline to say, we want HQ2 sweepstakes and they're moving their headquarters here. You know, there is a reality, though, that there's downside risk if they don't execute on what they promised to execute on. And I think, you know, just generally when you're 10, 12 years into a bull cycle, you don't see some of those those negative things. Like, I don't think 
in a normal context, if you look at, you know, development over 40 years, it's not crazy that some people plan for phase one, phase two, phase three type of developments and have to pause or hit the brakes on phase two and phase three because of market conditions. Like, so in today's environment, like this is completely abnormal from what we've seen over the last 10 years. So it's definitely headline worthy, but I don't think it's abnormal in the sense that if you go back and look at large scale developments over time, you've probably had a lot of people tap the brakes. And to your point, man, it's not like they're pulling out of that market. And the long-term opportunity is still there for them to expand over time. I do think it begs the question of, you know, how much is too much on the incentives and how can you properly mitigate that? And are there clawbacks and other things that these municipalities could put in to make sure that they're not, you know, feeling the full brunt of not getting the jobs created and other things. But on the whole, I I think this is somewhat normal, you know, given market conditions and where we're at today. So we have a number of other stories, and I know you like to fire through them quickly, but we'll try to keep pace. Yeah, this is going from 33 to 78 for you vinyl fans out there. So the first one, Laura Waxman of the San Francisco Business Times uh, noted that Salesforce is dumping more space. It's at the Salesforce Tower. They're giving up six floors, which I think is about 200,000 square feet, another blow to the San Francisco market. If I'm a CMBS guy, the thing that I'm keeping close tabs on is that Salesforce tower in Indianapolis, where Salesforce also has a lot of square footage there, something that you may want to keep an eye on. Uh, David Borax, WFAE in Charlotte, uh, Duke Energy just recently reported a $500 million loss. Uh, Most of that was writing down the value of a renewable energy business. But the bigger issue was that they took a $100 million charge for layoffs and for office space consolidation. They are looking to consolidate from four buildings down to one in Charlotte for their new corporate headquarters. We we had already reported that Wells Fargo was reducing its space in Charlotte considerably, something to watch there. Uh, Greg Cornfield, Commercial Observer, California is looking to cut office leases at 132 locations that will cover 1.2 million square feet, potentially saving them $35 million a year. In Chicago, Uber has put more space up at Chicago's old post office. In Pittsburgh, Phillips has put space out for sublease. That comes from the Pittsburgh Business Times, 74,000 square feet. In Concord, California, B of A will not renew 300,000 square feet at 2000 Clayton Boulevard. That particular market already has a vacancy for Class A office of 25%. This will put more vacant space on a market that's already struggling. In the Puget Sound, this comes from Rick Morgan, uh, Accolade, which is a healthcare company, reducing headcount and is looking to consolidate offices. Not sure where yet, but they have big offices in downtown Seattle and in Plymouth Meeting outside of Philadelphia. In Dallas, Lancey Homes looking to scale back on office space. And lastly, Julie Etchickson of The Real Deal noted that logistics slash trucking company Rider Systems has sold its corporate headquarters in Miami-Dade County. It is looking to downsize its footprint down in uh, southeastern Florida. So that's what I have. 
Okay, man. So you went through a lot of uh, a lot of office stories here. I wanted to circle back with a few comments on a couple of them. The Salesforce story, I think, is really interesting because it said in January it's expected it was expected to incur 450 million to 650 million in charges associated with its office space reductions. So another big, you know, obstacle for for them cost wise. You mentioned the Duke Energy and the 531 million dollar loss for the fourth quarter. But they also announced plans to cut 300 million in expenses this year. So another, you know, negative thing, even outside of just the office news. And then I think on the California, you know, that's basically the California government saying that they want to trim 132 office leases. So, you know, something to consider there is a lot of revenue is generated from the commercial property tax base. And we talked last week or a week or two ago around how much government leasing consists of, you know, downtown urban office buildings. So this almost exacerbates a the problem. They're trying to cut leases to save 35 million a year, but in doing so, it's also going to reduce the value of those buildings, which is then going to reduce the tax revenue that comes in. So it'll be really interesting to see how that actually plays out in the marketplace. Um, so I think that's something, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, just to keep an eye on. If the government starts pulling out of some of these leases, and in a lot of cases, they have options to get out, you know, that's way less punitive for them being a government entity than in the, a private lease negotiation that you have with a private company. It'll be really interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, one thing we didn't mention, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this as well. Uh, earlier today, General Motors announced that it was offering buyouts to 70% of its salaried workers. And General Motors has a fairly sizable footprint, not a sizable there are some CMBS loans where General Motors is a tenant, an office tenant, one notably in Charlotte, where they are a tenant, uh, fairly near-term lease expiring. Duke Energy is also a tenant in that building, as is Red Ventures, who terminated their lease ending in 2023. And uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's a canary in a coal mine. 70% of your salaried workers being offered buyouts, I mean, that's, that's staggering. Yeah, it's uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth actually had some Twitter commentary around that today. And I think, you know, it's it's interesting how some companies are trying to frame this as non-force layoffs, but effectively they're layoffs with a little bit of a buyout option. Um, so I agree with you. And I think even on the Charlotte stuff, you know, Charlotte kind of came on the scene over the last couple of years as this darling city. And there's a lot of people that have moved there and Housing prices have increased significantly. Multifamily developments blown out up in in Charlotte, but you start losing some of these employers, you know, or downsizing the number of headcount there. And it'll be really interesting to see how resilient those cities are. I mean, we've seen large cities, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, others facing some of these same, you know, immediate crisis scenarios. But long term, I think people are still bullish on them. For some of these like secondary cities that maybe had some prominence coming out of COVID, it'll be interesting to see how resilient they are. And then one other thing you had mentioned, you know, the housing company, Lancey Homes. Well, what we didn't mention there is that they're actually moving their headquarters from Southern California to Dallas. So just more news. And there's been a lot of Twitter hub over the last couple of days around migration patterns, corporate relocations to the Texas and Southern, you know, region. And I think this just shows that's not really a one hit wonder. I mean, I think we're going to see that. I think Jamie Dimon actually came out this week and said they have more employees in Texas than they do in New York at this point. So really interesting just to kind of see how that impacts the CRE landscape. 
Well, the Jamie Dimon comment, the one that stuck out to me was this was kind of like a, you know, a kind of passive aggressive remark about New York. He said, at least in Texas, we're welcome. And to me, I'd be really nervous if I'm a government official in New York. To me, that says we don't need the whatever it is, the two million square feet we have in New York. We're okay leaning in more on Texas than in New York, right? I, I would try to schedule a meeting with Jamie Dimon real quick and make sure that we don't lose one of the bellwethers of New York in terms of uh, income generation, tax generation, staples of Midtown and so forth. That's uh, it was a very discouraging remark for a native New Yorker. Yeah, it's really interesting, this shift to business-friendly states. You know, I think work from home and some of the paradigm shift in the office market has actually created opportunities for some of these companies to fully reevaluate. And to your point, you know, if I'm New York, I'm probably trying to do some things, not just with his firm, but with others like them that have been staples and trying to get them remain committed to New York. It'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out. One other story I wanted to highlight here, Danny Ecker from Chicago Cranes. I had a story on a chemical company in Chicago, uh, CF Industries. They're the world's largest producer of ammonia for agricultural fertilizer. So this is a story, you know, they signed a new lease for about 78,000 square feet, um, but they're downsizing about 176,000 square foot is what they currently occupy now. So as you've mentioned in the past, man, it's just kind of a you know, mixed green in the sense that it's great news for the new location, which is one Estella's Way in Northbrook. Not great news for Four Parkway North and Deerfield. Yeah, I don't think we don't, talked about this last week, but there was also that story in Greenfield about Walgreens pulling out either completely or dramatically. That, you know, that is, it, it's been a long time in coming. This suburban Chicago downsizing trend has really been something that's been going on for 10 years. And and that's continuing today. But uh, Walgreens was another story in that that market. I never like to do just crabgrass. So I will do three green shoots very quickly. Uh, this is from the registry in the Pacific Northwest. Alaska Airlines has expanded to 110,000 square feet at the Long Acres campus in Renton. In uh, Miami, Kaseya, which is an IT and security firm, has signed a new 100,000 square foot office lease at the Wells Fargo Center. Good news there. And in New York at three times square, Toro University, which shockingly took 250,000 square feet at three times square, which is a Rudin management office, up their square footage to 310,000 square feet. That's a big school. It can't be long before they have a football team there. That's a lot of space. <laughs> Yeah, it was like an additional 66,000 square foot. I think it was across two floors. So to your point, really, really big lease signing, 310,000 square foot of space for a university is uh, nothing to sneeze at. What's the mascot of Toro, Lonnie? Do you know? No, I remember you did a you did a question and uh, actually had wagered a little bit of money if I knew some of the Florida school mascots and I failed. The Havalina. I'm just going to... Yeah, the Havelina. I'm going to go ahead and just fail this one, too, without a guess. I, I don't have no know. We're going to have to look it up. <laughs> if anybody in our listener base knows, feel free to to share it with us. I don't know the, the mascot of Toro. I'm going to guess it's the Toro Tigers. It's got to be a bolt. No? Well played, Martha. <laughs> you have so much, You have a lot of gray, much more gray matter than I have. 
So Jack Rogers from Globe Street had a story this week that was covering Prologis. Uh, says uh, San Francisco-based logistics uh, firm has uh, filed plans for a f- over 550,000 square foot life science campus. And this is near another development that they have that's about 600,000 square foot. And that's according to the San Francisco Business Times. So Prologis is looking to build you know, this additional new campus, feature office and labs. Um, it's going to be at a couple of different locations, uh, 101 through 150 and 170 Associated Road as well as 175 Sylvester Road. So um, in order for them to clear the way for this, they have to demolish a 4.7 acre warehouse that's on the site. So, you know, we've heard a lot about the Northeast and the Boston area for life science. We had covered some stories in the Dallas area and maybe even some Houston stuff around life science. So it's interesting to see now in the Bay Area, Prologis making a bet on the the life science. The life science thing is interesting because the ground, you know, is really planted in Cambridge, right? We saw all those companies move from central New Jersey and northern New Jersey and kind of that Marlboro 128 corridor outside of Boston into Cambridge. But to take the other side of the argument, we're now starting to see a little softness there. Biogen this week put out a sizable amount of space in Cambridge. I think they're the second or third firm to put space up in Cambridge for sublet. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. But certainly in other areas, in San Diego and other cities, the demand for land and redevelopment and positioning for land science uh, seems insatiable right now. And a number of programming notes. I think I'm going to put this one under the category of good work if you can get it. Our banking team is going to the Independent Community Bankers of America Conference, which happens to be in Honolulu next week. So they will be there if you're interested in meeting up with them, let us know. And lucky you, we'll tell you uh, where you can find them, what booth in uh, Hawaii. This week, we had International Women's Day panel that was hosted by our own Anne-Marie DeCola. And she spoke to a dynamite lineup of leadership women, Deborah Morgan of Cone Resnick, Rachel Brown of Bank of Tampa, Kate Mylott of Deckert, and Leanna Vision of FC. And if some of those names sound familiar, they should. They've been previous podcast guests. Yeah, it was really great. That event was really well attended on our side. And I think if you were lucky enough to be on um, some really insightful, you know, guidance stories, it was really great to hear from each of the individual panelists, just how they've you know, overcome some challenges and how they're providing some insight and guidance to, you know, women coming up through the commercial real estate space in today's environment. And I'll tell you, we need more diversity in this industry and we need more women in leadership positions. So good on Trap and good on Anne-Marie and good on the panelists for, you know, helping pave that uh, that way for the future generation. And we mentioned our uh, podcast, Danielle DiMartino Booth. We had a lot of great feedback as a result of that episode. And so I'm going to probably not give a number of people their fair due, but on Twitter, Ben P, Darth Powell, Dan M, Zachary F, Chad B, Foman88, Travis L, Mike H, Greg G. The comments were everything from Rockstar to uh, one of the best podcasts. You have to take a listen. Our own uh, Ben Ching said uh, he thought it was one of the best podcasts we've had. And Rachel B said the pod was unbelievable and so glad we covered it. She's a real Women's Day hero. So uh, a lot of kudos to you guys. I have some serious FOMO that I wasn't on that podcast. 
That's fear of missing out, Manus. Yes, uh, it, it was fun. We missed you, Martha. They're never quite uh, the same without having your your insights here. But uh, Haley did a great job, and we were lucky to have her move from behind the glass to in front of the glass for one week. And a number of other comments we had: Oz reach out, Bob Y, Iman J, Joseph S, and Scott C sent us a shout out from a colleague, Jody, who we haven't talked to in some time. She's a former Trep alum. And, you know, we talk about data on this podcast, so I need to make sure you guys know there's a new return to office benchmark, and it's the water cooler volume. So I guess hedge funds and other investors are going to look at this company, Bevy's data, into a window of office occupancy. I'm not I'm not convinced I'm a believer on that one. I, I wonder how it's going to work. Are they going to put like a little flotation device like uh, you have in your gas tank that is supposed to tell you when you're close to empty, right? That's that's monitoring your your full tank, you know, how close you are to, to empty. I, I don't know how this works in reality. And is is it gonna have like some kind of chip in it that's spitting out all kinds of radioactive signals back to uh, satellites? I, I don't really know. It sounds about as suspicious to me as what I heard today in the news, which was just extraordinary, that the WWE which is the wrestling federation, right? The stuff that is on Monday night where you see the guys in tights wrestling. I think, you know, everybody knows that it's scripted for kids between, I guess, maybe nine and 14. It's incredibly thrilling, right? That seems to be the core audience. Back in the day, my nine to 14 year old kids would drag me to that periodically. And uh, it was quite a goof, but they're they're lobbying now to be permitted to have live betting on scripted matches. And all I can tell you is that if that goes through, me and Lonnie are heading to Washington and we're going to have live betting on how long the podcast is going to be each week. And if you notice, if we pass this and you notice towards the end, (laughs) I start stretching things out, you'll know why. Right, we will have won the day down in Washington, and we will have allowed for authorized betting on the over under on the the podcast. Yeah, I would say a couple of things on that. One, uh, I don't think we hold the cards and how long the podcast is, Manus, because Haley's the one that determines how long the podcast is. So someone would just get someone would get to Haley, and they would win, and she would win. So um, hopefully, she'd cut us in on that if that ended up happening. And then two, on the water cooler stuff. I'm assuming it has to do with the number of water jugs that get delivered, right? So like they're measuring that as kind of a a yardstick and consumption levels and so forth. It reminds me, I think I read something sometime that said there was uh, some folks that owned some coin-operated car washes that were getting audited by the IRS because they felt like they had underreported their income. And so they started looking at water consumption through the utility bills on how many gallons of water they'd use and they could deduce how many quarters would have to be put in the machine to generate that much water usage so i'm not like super out on this i think this could be something i just don't know enough about water delivery to see how accurate that is because some of those are probably just on a contract and they get water you know whether they need it or not so interesting stuff and yeah, hopefully, uh, I thought you were going to take us and say you and I were going to be in tights and wrestling each other. So I'm glad we didn't go there. <laughs> no, I wouldn't mess with you, Lonnie. I think uh, <laughs> you, you'd you know climb on that third turnbuckle and you'd give me the the power elbow. <laughs> to pull those two threads together, I'm, 
I'm going to be on the lookout for Lonnie and big piles of water jugs behind him on the podcast, right? That he's trying to manipulate the data to show that more people are back to the office to, uh, to help the office cause. You know, you heard it here first, the water cooler index, it's a thing. And with that, we will close. Thanks to our producer, Haley Keene. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or a comment, send your email to podcast at trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. Oh.